sisters in Christ, my family. You guys are my family. I love you all so much, and I'm so grateful to be here to share with you what God is laying on my heart. And I'm extra excited today because I feel like the music, the song selection, was God was moving in that, and and what we're going to be talking about today is going to actually flow right out of some of the themes we were we were singing about. So I'm really excited to see what God has for us this morning. So today we are going to be talking about stories. Storytelling, the art of storytelling, is as old as humanity itself. It's one of the few things that every culture, every religion, across every time span has in common. We, we communicate primarily through stories. Um, in the early days, it was oral tradition, and then we have books, and now art, and plays, and movies, and TV shows. It's one of the primary ways we learn and communicate and entertain and all these other things. If you think about how much time we spend watching TV and movies and reading books, and you know, it's, it's a huge part of our lives. Christianity itself has a very long and rich history of storytelling itself. Just look at the Old Testament. Most of those books, a good chunk of those books, are stories, right? We read these stories of these heroes of the faith and how God was moving and what God was doing. And if you look at Jesus' teaching, he opted to, to teach in parables a lot of the time, trying to communicate these eternal truths through story. And we continue to engage this tradition of storytelling in our churches. We, we actually did it this morning when you shared. You shared your story of what God was doing. Thank you, that was such a blessing. That was so encouraging to hear, right? We, we engage in this continually, and it serves as an encouragement and a teacher to us. So I want you guys to, to think about your favorite stories, your favorite TV show, maybe there's a, something you're really into, um, a movie, a book, whatever it is, and think, think about it. What makes a good story? Now, there's no wrong answers here. I want you to shout it out. Everyone, we, we all like different stuff, but what to you makes a good story? Maybe it's a happy ending, um, a compelling plot twist, something like that. So shout it out. What makes a good story for you? Relationships, characters, yes, need characters for sure. Relatable. Good wins. Yes. Yep, make it interesting. Yep. Yep, totally. Happy ending. Yeah, my husband and I go head to head on that one. He likes the happy endings. And I like what I like to call poignant endings. I, I like to feel like the human struggle and like I'm, you know, I'm learning something from it. Um, but yeah, so we all have these different ideas of what makes a good story. But there's one, one thing I think we can probably all agree on that makes a good story. And it seems like kind of an obvious one, an ending. None of us like unfinished stories. Imagine you are sitting down with your family, you're having movie night, and it's like, the best movie you've seen in months. It's like gripping, or maybe years, it's gripping. Five minutes before the end, TV goes down. What's the response? Is everybody like, yeah, we watched basically the whole thing, that's good enough for me. It's panic, it's, are the lights off, is the power out, or is it just the TV? Quick, get on the TV, you get off your phone, no spoiling the ending, right? We need to know the ending. Similar thing, actually, for a really bad movie, a really boring movie. You make it through most of the movie, you got about 10 minutes left. 
Most of us at that point, even though it's kind of terrible, we go, well, I made it this far. I may as well wait to see how it ends. Maybe the ending will redeem the whole thing. There's a few of us who will actually turn it off, but most of us, we're going to sit through the whole thing. And then what about movies that, or stories that have a really, they're a really good story, but then the ending, it was like they didn't have enough time for the ending. So you've got all these different things going on, and then the end, they don't really wrap it up properly. You've got like 10 loose ends that are still loose. And you finish the movie and you're like, I guess that was the end, but it's not really satisfying, right? No matter the scenario, we don't like not having a resolve. The same thing is true in our personal lives. We all have multiple stories, storylines running at any given time. And by that, I mean um, a friendship. So your friendship with someone will have a start when you first met, beginning, middle, and an end eventually. And hopefully we all have lifelong friends that, you know, they end when we end. But uh, friendships work. How did you get in your career, beginning, middle, and end? How did you get to be where you are? Um, it, your faith, your faith has a story to it, right? And, and so we have some of these stories that are shorter, some of them that are longer. We have the story of our day, what happened yesterday. If we tell someone that story, it'll have a beginning, middle, and end. And some stories are really, really big. Now, if these are really good stories and we, we feel like we can sort of see the trajectory of it, we don't mind being in the middle of it, right? It, you know, stop and smell the roses, but even then we have to remind ourselves with little sayings like, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, to stop and remind ourselves to be present in the story, right? We crave this resolution even when we're enjoying ourselves. But how do we feel when we are in the middle of a story and there has been a plot twist? Maybe we initially liked the trajectory, but now we don't like where things are going so much. Or when we think we see the ending coming and then it just keeps going and going and going and going and we're not feeling this resolve in our lives. Well, there is a group of churches that we read about in the book of 2 Peter that is all too familiar with this feeling. And, and the story that they're living through that isn't going quite according to plan is not a small story. It is the biggest story that there is. And they thought that they knew the beginning, middle, and how it was going to end, but they were proved to be very wrong. And this caused a huge crisis of faith for them. So we're going to take a look at that book today. So... The churches that are addressed in this book are a bunch of churches across five provinces in Asia Minor, and it was written sometime between 60 and 120 CE, depending when you date it. And the things that they were facing, there's two things. First thing, this big story I was talking about. Most Christians, most early Christians, first generation, believe that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Um, just before Jesus is... Uh, everything goes down and he's taken up to heaven. In Matthew 16, he says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So they interpreted that literally. People who are standing there looking at Jesus, they weren't going to die. But the problem was, is when this book was written, depending if you are looking at the earlier date or the later date, either a good chunk of the Christians who had been there had died off, or the entire generation had died off. So now what was left for the remaining Christians is 
what? That is not how we expected that to happen. We thought Jesus would be back by now. What do we do? And not only that, they were being persecuted, which, you know, on top of everything, does not make it any better. People are taunting them, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So these guys are in kind of a rough spot. So Peter writes them a letter, and he spends the entire letter basically trying to deal with this crisis that they find themselves in, of being in the middle of a story that isn't going to end the way they thought it would. So we can learn from him and what he writes to them how we can handle these moments when we feel like we're shaken because we, we don't know where things are going. So the first thing that he does to try and encourage them is he tells stories of God's faithfulness. So he does this, he, the, the stories he tells kind of fall into two categories. The first category is he goes back to the Bible. He digs up old stories to try and remind them, see, see, okay, you might not know your story, but look at this story. We see how this story played out, beginning, middle, and end, and ah, look what God did there. He says to them in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, I'm trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you, you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets at the commandment of their Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to arouse the sincere faith again in you. Um, and, and look at God's faithfulness. So in chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, he goes through three different stories. The first story he tells is of angels being cast into hell for being disobedient to God at the very beginning when Satan gets cast into hell as well. And that might seem like an odd story to tell if you're trying to remember God's faithfulness. But remember, these people are being persecuted. So this story is to illustrate the justice of God, right? For those who do right, the angels, they're in heaven. For those who were disobedient, they got cast down. I'm just, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Next story he tells is of Noah and his family and how they were spared while the rest of the wicked world perished. And right, that's incredibly encouraging. Yeah, God's not going to leave us. He sees us. And then he tells a story of Lot and how he was spared during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he ends all of this with kind of wrapping it up nicely. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this is something we can, we can mimic in our own lives, right? When we're feeling this unsettledness with where we are, we can go back to scripture. We can and we should often to remind us what God has done. <clears throat> the next type of story he tells is a personal one. And this is really powerful. This, this will have been one of probably the most powerful personal experiences Peter had. And he will have had a lot of them being around with Jesus, following him around, being a follower. Um, but I can imagine this, this is the sort of thing that would stick to you, uh, that would stick with you, that you would return to time and time again. So Peter was present at something called the Transfiguration, which is where Jesus and Peter and a few other guys went up on a mountain, and they have this absolutely wild encounter. If you want to read about it, it's in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8. They have this wild encounter with some past, um, like, big fathers of the faith, and this presence of God comes down, and it's, talk about faith building. If you're ever not sure, 
hmm, is God real or what's he doing? Having this encounter with these like giants of the faith and the glory of God, like, okay, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's something you'll hold on to, right? So he's, he retells this a little bit in Second uh, uh, Peter 1, verses 16 to 18 and says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice during the transfiguration was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's trying to stoke the embers of their faith by saying, yeah, you know what? We should be looking back at scripture. That is where we get our truth from. And I had an experience. I can vouch for that. I can vouch. I know with my own eyes, God is moving. God is real, and he will keep his promise to them. Listening to others share their stories of faithfulness and sharing our own stories, even if it's with ourselves, sharing our own stories back to ourselves, can be a powerful tool for reminding us uh, who God is and what he does. And this is actually something that's been studied in psychology, not, not necessarily within um, the religious context, but it's known as the self-explanation effect, where when you share through, through that process, they can actually register, you learn and develop deeper understanding through the process of sharing your story through the process of relaying information. So it's vital, this is vital that we do this with one another and with ourselves. One story that I find myself going back to, my sort of big story, is my love story. I had, we have a bit of an unconventional love story in some ways. Um, I was a bit of an unconventional teenager. I was incredibly devout, and what that meant for me is I had decided no dating, that would get in the way of me and God, and. Whatever, that's what I had decided at the time. <laughs> and uh, so I, needless to say, I had a very odd reaction to having a crush. I was distraught. I thought, oh boy, this is not what I want. I'm 15, I'm not gonna be able to get married for a while, so this is pointless. I'm just very pragmatic about this, and this is what I've decided between me and God. I don't want, I don't want to have this crush. And so I remember praying, God, take away this crush. It's such a distraction, da-da-da-da-da. And I remember feeling one of the times in my life where I felt God impress something on me the strongest. And he said, no. And most teenagers would go, awesome. But I was like, what do you mean no? This doesn't make sense. Like, all my Bible reading and all this, like, you should be saying, yes, I'll take that away from you. But God said, no. And I didn't get much more than that. It was a no. We need to play this out. So here I am in the middle of the story going, uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. I'd already decided, which is hilarious when you're 15, but I was like, I'll be single my whole life, that's okay. Little did I know, on the other side of me praying to God to take away this little crush, Matthew was getting up every single morning and praying to the Lord that we would be together. No idea. So apparently Matthew's the more righteous one in our relationship because God clearly was on his side on that. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are. We, we dated for a few years, a few years down the line yet, and uh, we've been married for nine years as of two weeks ago. And can I tell you something? That was the best, one of the best decisions I've made in my entire life, to marry Matthew. And the wisdom that God had in bringing us together 
on, I, I feel like it's a weekly basis, I see some new way that I hadn't recognized before where he and I just, we just work together so well. And what that does to me, it, I just, I'm filled with faith. I had, you know, we, we dated for a couple years before we got married, and that, a couple years is a long enough time to get to know someone fairly well, but we hadn't raised a child together, we hadn't gone through life together, right? And so there was still, as much as I knew him well, there was things, there's no way I would have been able to know about him without actually having lived this life together. So God knew all those things, right? So there was so much wisdom in bringing us together. And I'm just, like I said, this is, this, is my, this is my story that I go back to. If I'm ever in the middle of something and I'm like, I don't know if I can trust God on this, I go, ah, wait, he knew what he was doing in a big way. Yes, you know what? I'm gonna sit tight, I can trust him. We all have these stories and thank you for letting me share that because now, According to psychology, I just developed a deeper understanding, deepened my faith. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully that's an encouragement for you as well. So, primary way that Peter, you know, helps to encourage these folks is he tells them these stories. The other thing that he does is he instructs them to sort of just keep living the Christian life. One day at a time, trying to put into practice the things that they've been taught. In uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7, he says this. This divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. This is a great passage. It sounds very familiar. There's lots of these lists in the letters to the different churches of, you know, the, the godly behaviors we want to cultivate and that the Spirit works in us. Um, he has a few other things he suggests to them in chapter 3. He tells them to lead lives of holiness and godliness, to seek peace and have patience in their circumstance. And then he tells them, he kind of runs out of time at the very end, and he's like, uh... Go back, read Paul's writings. There's lots of other good stuff in there. Lots of good instruction about how to lead godly lives. And then he ends the letter. Now, if this were me in this church, and I'm having like a crisis of faith, my faith is dangling by a thread here, this seems like pretty shallow to me, if I'm being honest. That, I, I'd be like, what now? There's no special advice for this clearly very, very special circumstance we're going through. Because I, I don't think we realize the, the depth of the shaking of the bedrock that's going on here. Like, not, there's practical implications for, for Jesus not being back yet. People, people are going to keep dying. They have to figure out what is our Christian response to death and mourning and burial and oh my goodness i guess we have to look back at some of our theology that was hinging on this this is huge 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 for them and to simply get the advice eh, keep doing what you're doing keep living godly lives i would i wouldn't be very impressed so why does he do this i think the point is what they're experiencing while it feels huge it's normal that is normal life. Living in the midst of messy, unfinished stories is the reality of the life of faith, not a defect in your faith. 
I'm going to say that again. Living in the midst of messy, unfinished stories is the reality of life. That's why he's treating it as normal, because that is the reality of life. It's not a defect in your faith. God is okay with long stories. All you have to do is crack open your Bible and read. There are long stories everywhere. If you look at the Israelites in exile, imagine being in the middle of, in the middle of that. All you see behind you, the generations behind you, exile. All you see in front of you, your children, your grandchildren, exile, exile, exile. Was God bothered by the time span? I don't think so. Look at the hall of faith, as we like to call it, in Hebrews chapter 11. A list of all of these um, figures that, that we're to look to for their faith. And if you actually go back for each of them and read their stories, most of their stories that they're celebrated for their faith for outstretch their lifetime, or it takes the course of their lifetime. Did you know the amount of time between when Abraham was alive and Jesus was born is roughly the same amount of time as when Jesus was taken back to heaven and us right now? 2,000 years. But would we look back at Abraham and go, oh, that was way too long for, you know, between Abraham and Jesus. What was God doing? That was way too long, right? God is very, very, very okay working in these time spans. 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9 says, Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, as we think of slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. When God takes its time, his time, it's because he's doing something. He's doing something good. We read in Romans 8.28, super famous passage, we know that all things work together for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So then the question is, are we okay with long stories? And like I said in the beginning, you know, if, if it's a story that we like, we, we like the trajectory of, yeah, you know what, it's a little uncomfortable, we need to remind ourselves, stop and smell the roses, whatever, that sort of thing. But I think sometimes our uncomfortability with these long stories goes a little bit deeper than that. And it comes down to bad theology. We sometimes have this idea of a transactional God, where if we do X, Y, and Z, then God will respond in kind, right? If we pray enough the right way, do the right things, God is going to bless us, right? There's a name for this. It's called the prosperity gospel. Well, if you do things a certain way, if you really are living in God's will, you will be blessed with health, wealth, and prosperity. And so we internalize this a little bit, and, and it's, not just, it's not just, you know, within the church, but it comes from the wider world as well, in our Western culture, right? We're very, rah, rah, you got this, you can do it, you think it, you got it, right? So if, you're, if you don't have something, if things aren't going your way, it's probably on you. But if we look at scripture, we see that that is just not the case. The book of Job is basically a case study in this. Job, it says, is righteous. He's blameless. He lives this beautiful life before the Lord. And he has lots of stuff. So God has this um, interaction with this figure known as Hasatan, called the accuser. Some people say Satan. Um, 
but there's some debate about about uh, who exactly it is. But anyway, it's this, this person is accusing God and he's saying, you know the only reason that Job is good is because you give him all this stuff. And so the point of the book, God wants to separate these two things, being good and having stuff. And so he says, okay, is that what you think, Hasatan? I'm gonna prove you wrong. I'm gonna take all of Job's stuff away. And not just like take all of Job's stuff away, all of his kids die. And he gets covered in these boils. He gets this illness and he's very, very sick. And so the bulk of the book of Job is Job going through this, through the messiness, through the middle of the story. And he has this dialogue with his friends. And his friends, very well-intentioned, keep saying this to him, this, this prosperity gospel. They say, Job, you must have done something wrong. Otherwise, God wouldn't have taken this stuff away from you. Not knowing this conversation that's going on behind the scenes between God and the accuser. Job, 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 it's your fault, it's your fault. And Job, Job keeps going, no, I, like, guys, I didn't do anything. I, like, I'm pretty sure I didn't do anything. And then when we get to the end, God has his chance to speak his peace. And he said, yeah, Job is right. Job didn't do anything. This was me. This is me. I've got my bigger thing going on behind the scenes that you don't see. This isn't, this isn't about Job doing bad stuff. And so we see that, well, and actually it's, it's quite a cool story because in the end, then God ends up giving Job back double what he had lost which is just such a cool ending, right? Um, speaks to God's faithfulness and, and, you know, that Job was right to be like, no, I'm pretty sure God is just working. This isn't me. And that should serve as an encouragement to us, right? And, and a good counter against that theology that says, if you're going through something rough, it automatically means that you must have done something wrong. And that's not to say that our, when we make bad decisions and stuff that they don't have consequences, because we live through those as well, right? We know that, that's, that that is something. But just because you're going through a trial, just because you're in the middle of a long, unfinished story, doesn't mean that it's because of you. It could just mean that you're living in the middle of something really big and beautiful that God is doing. There's a really great example. One of my favorites uh, in the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, they, they, Jesus and his disciples encounter this blind man. And the first thing his disciples ask, they turn to Jesus and say, so who sinned to make him this way? Was it his parents or was it him? And Jesus is like, uh, neither. The, the right answer is that I, God allowed him to be born blind so that after decades of this man's life, God could be glorified in him. This is God's story, not his story. This is God's story. So how do we make peace in our lives with these long stories? The reason I ask this question, partly, is because the word peace comes up a few times in this short book. So that's our, a hint that it's probably important. And uh, the word peace that's used here, so 2 Peter 3:14. therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace. This word peace means something a little different than I think we would assume based on our cultural understanding of the word peace. So if you think peace, most of us, you know, you cl close your eyes, what's a, what's a peaceful scenario? You're sitting on a dock with your cup of coffee first thing in the morning, beautiful, calm lake, it's still, it's quiet. But this word peace here, the Greek word is irene, and the root word for that is iro, and it means wholeness. Not stillness, not lack of chaos, not quiet. It means wholeness. 
That's the sort of peace we are encouraged to find in these times. Chaos and big feelings are part of living in the midst of unfinished stories. That's not, that's not a defect of, God knows, God made us, guys. He knows our emotions. He knows our feelings. These aren't bad things we need to defeat. Instead, peace comes in this sense of wholeness, which I think now we can look back to the two techniques that Peter was using, telling these stories and encouraging them. That, I think, can help bring us back to this sense of wholeness. When we can see, when we can remind ourselves that I may not have the whole picture, God has the whole picture. Wholeness, wholeness, wholeness is found in him. It's not found in having a perfectly wrapped up story. It's found in him. I find it very interesting and somewhat unsettling as a Christian to notice the fact that here, again, in 314, he says, strive to be found at peace in him. And in another spot where he talks about peace, he talks about it as in, in similar terms as well. Because we often, we often, we don't like that word strive too much in, in, in our circles, right? Because it feels like we're trying to do workspace things, right? But I think it points to something really key. Trying to find peace in these scenarios takes work on our part. Because again, we do have all these competing feelings, genuine, true, okay feelings that come up as we are going through these scenarios, right? So don't be discouraged if feeling this wholeness, feeling this peace doesn't come naturally. We need to keep going back, keep ingesting and digesting these stories to, to usher us back into that peace. And the Holy Spirit helps us with that, right? Jesus is a really great example of this tension between that wholeness, that peace, and living in the midst and allowing yourself to be present in some chaos. Uh, we read this just beautiful example in the book of John, chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. So it's a really big chunk. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, this is a story of Lazarus's death. So in the beginning of the, of the chapter, some women come to Jesus, tell him, hey, Lazarus is, is really, really sick. This isn't looking good. And Jesus responds with, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it's for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Right? So he's saying, don't worry, guys. We know the ending. It's going to turn out good. But then a really interesting thing happens. Lazarus dies. And rather than Jesus going, come on, okay, troops, we got to rally. Remember, it's going to end okay. Jesus, it says he's greatly disturbed. And it doesn't say that just once. It says it multiple times. He's greatly disturbed. This is affecting him, even though he knows the outcome. He allows himself to be affected. And this is actually where we get our famous Jesus wept passage from. Jesus weeps, even though he knows that Lazarus is going to get raised from the dead, which he does, right? Jesus gives himself this permission to live and inhabit his humanity. And we have that permission as well. I think that's something we need to work on in our Christian circles is making this a little bit more okay. Um, I remember reading the story a few years back. I tried to find it again, but um, I'm going off of memory here. Um, a story of this Jewish woman who one of her best friends in college was a Christian, and she passed away. 
very young, under very tragic circumstances. And this Jewish woman attended her funeral. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with um, Jewish culture very much, but they have a very rich mourning tradition. So when someone dies, you sit shiva. So the, the close family and friends get together for a week. And all you do is be together in, you, in your humanity and you mourn. You feel the loss. You allow yourselves to sit in that loss. They also do something called Yarzeit, which is every single year on the anniversary of, of the death of someone you love, you get together, you light a candle, and you have this time of mourning again every single year for every single loved one, right? So this woman is coming to this funeral. This is her experience with death and mourning. So she comes to this funeral of this Christian woman, and it's a celebration of life. No one's allowed to wear black. Um, the only talk at the funeral is we're so, it's so much better that she's gone because she's with Jesus. And this Jewish woman is appalled. She's absolutely appalled. She's going, what do you mean it's better that she's gone? She was 20 some years old and she died in a tragic accident. Are you guys nuts? And she's frantically searching every face to see if she can see any tears. She's like, what is, what is wrong with these people? What? We lost somebody. How can they be okay with this? And this is not to say that celebrations of life's lives are, are bad or wrong, because we do have hope, right? We do. We're told in Scripture not to mourn in the same way that people who have no hope do, because we do have hope. But it's not that we shouldn't mourn, right? And so I think there's a happy medium there, right, where, yeah, we're going to hold on to that wholeness, onto that hope, but we need to be okay, and we need to give one another space to be in our circumstances and to come alongside one another as we are in our circumstances. So as we wrap up here, um, I want you guys, each of us, to stop and think, what is an unfinished story in your life that is maybe causing you some stress? We all have them. Some of them are probably pretty big. Some of them are, might be a little bit smaller. I want, you to, I want you to pick something. Maybe it's an unresolved relational conflict within your family. Your relationship is not where you want it to be at. Maybe you are feeling lost in your career. Maybe you lost somebody unexpectedly, or maybe not unexpectedly, but it's staying with you, and you're not really sure how to, where to go from here. So as you hold that in your mind, Kaylee, can I get you to pull up that first picture? We're going to look at a visual, visual representation of whatever that thing is. Anybody know what that is? Can you make any meaning from that? No. It's a blurry mess. And that is how our situations feel sometimes. Like they are a blurry mess. So let's maybe, let's pull back a little bit, try and get a little bit more context. Pull up the next picture. Here we go. Give a little bit more context. Mm, not really. You can see that there's something beyond the, the tan-colored blob. 
In order to get a real sense of what's going on here, though, we have to, we have to zoom really far out. So you can pull up the last picture, Kaylee. That's what we were looking at. And you know, when we are in the middle of these unfinished stories, it can feel like we are a tiny little ant perched on that woman in the middle there on her skirt. And no matter which way you turn, you can go this way, you can go that way, you can go up, you can go down, all you see is meaningless tan blob. But the Lord can see what we're seeing right now. And you know the funny thing about this picture, guys? This, this tells a story, right? This, story, this, this picture tells a story, but this picture is called A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. So that is one moment in one Sunday afternoon in these people's lives. The story is even bigger than this, right? And God sees that too. So I want to leave that with you guys today. When we can only see the part, God can see the whole. And that can be our peace.